Welcome to episode 251 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got another great conversation coming up on this episode. It's on the heels of this whole church discipline series, and we're going to round it out with another addendum or an endnote or a footnote, whatever you want to call it. We're talking about ordination. And so I'm actually kind of excited about this because I can't remember the last time I listened to a lay conversation about ordination. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking that a little bit, especially in light of what we've been talking about before. I also realized that for whatever reason, when I gave the intro today, it came in pretty hot with like the radio voice. <laughs> Have you been practicing? No, not really. But I just, I was, as I was hearing it, I was thinking that's too much. You just need to calm down. Jesse comes and he's like, hey, cool cats and classy ladies. Welcome <laughs> to the Reformed Brotherhood. <laughs> Do you like that? Cool cats and classy ladies. Yeah. That Apparently was, that was, I, listen, I only really listened good. to radio from like the early seventies, late sixties, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Every, everything really is good. Dick Clark and the, the Top 40 Countdown. You're listening to Fresh Air. <laughs> I am Phoebe Judge. <laughs> I am not Phoebe Judge. Please don't sue us. <laughs> so before we get into a little talk on ordination or a big talk on ordination, let's go over our usual custom, affirmations and denials. Let's start with the affirmations today. What are you affirming? So I'm affirming an app. You are not going to be surprised by this because I texted you a <laughs> frantic message yesterday. I've been this using is, it. I mean, I say that I I, uh, I speak about apps a lot. This is probably one of the most like game changer kinds of apps that I've seen. It's called Highlighted. And it's not a new app. I don't know how I didn't find it before because it's. it wasn't like I searched mysterious keywords and stumbled on it. I just was like, why don't I search for this? It's called Highlighted. And basically what it is, is it, you enter the books that you're reading or the book you're reading. You can search by ISBN, title, whatever. It probably cross-references like WorldCat or the Library of Congress library or something like that. You can scan it. You scan, uh, you can scan the barcode of a book. Either way, you enter the book. And then when you're reading the book, you push the highlight button in your app and you take a picture of the page that you're reading. And then what it does is it uses character recognition to figure out what, what the words are. And you literally just tap on the area you want to highlight and you select like the boundary of the highlight and it transcribes that into a note. And then you can enter the page number or you don't have to enter the page number, but you can enter the page number. And then it allows you to export all of your highlights to text files, to Markdown, which I've been been trying to figure out a good way to do this because I've been trying to do this um, this Zetetical stand, I don't even know how to say it, but this slip note, note-taking process that we mentioned uh, that uh, came up when I was reading this book, How to Take Smart Notes. And a huge part of it is like when you highlight something, you have to be able to easily go back and like distill it into your own thoughts. And that was where I was struggling was, okay, so I've highlighted something. Now do I have to take all the time to like flip through my physical book and like rewrite all of the things I've highlighted? So what this does now is it'll send me a text file, which I can import directly into my note-taking software. And then I can add my own notes to it after the fact. So it's super, super simple. It's very intuitive. Um, and it allows you to sort of fill that gap between what you might be doing on like ebooks or in Logos Bible software. 
um, which by the way, you can still get a discount on if you go to reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, no, you go to logos.com slash reformbrotherhood. <laughs> I'm going to just have to set up a reformbrotherhood.com slash logos redirect so I can stop screwing that up. Uh, you can still get a discount on that, even though uh, the sponsorship that we had with them is technically over. You can still go over and uh, pick up a, a sweet deal from them. But it kind of fills in that gap of what you're used to doing in an electronic format and now allows you to do that in a sort of an easier way in written format. I was kind of hacking this together myself before where I was using like one of those scanning software photo things where you take a picture of the page and then I would send myself the photo and then I would hand type out and hand transcribe what it is. Um, but this just does all of that in one step and it's super, super slick. So I, I really don't think that it's too much to say that this is like a game changing app for people who are trying to read and take notes at the same time. It really is uh, quite simple. And, and it, I mean, it adds a little bit of time to what you're doing because you're doing something besides just reading. But I think personally, like the the payoff for it is so much better than if you were trying to like hand take notes and then go back and read through them. It's a lot faster, allows you to integrate that into your thought a lot easier. I was skeptical. You sent me the text and over text, your excitement was palpable. It was crazy. a sense that there was something different. You were really jazzed, jazzed up. Have I used that word on this yeah. podcast before? Jazzed up. Yeah. So yeah, I immediately took a look at it and then I was, I was really testing it. I was scanning like all kinds of weird pages, like mathematical stuff, as well as like just standard text. I'm very impressed so far. And this thing is free, right? I didn't yeah. see there was any you know, subscription or anything. Nope. So it's worth trying out. Because yeah. if you are a person that would, th everything's like, you know how like you do, maybe people don't do this thing. It's just me. But, you know, for all the books I have, both in Kindle and in physical form, there's a lot of times where I'm highlighting it and I'm really enjoying a book. And then I think to myself, am I ever going to go back yeah. and look at the things I just highlighted? And even is that I'm not going back because I don't care or I'm not going back because I'm just not going to try to pick up this book right. and try to find the really cool thing that I highlighted on page 57 yeah. of a 500 page book. This does solve that problem. So yep. if you're a nerd, you love reading, this is just like a really nice tool. It's like having a highlighter, like a physical highlighter or like a ruler next to you. You just have it on the phone, just scan that bad boy. And then I was so impressed with the image is crystal clear. Yeah. And it's easy to drag your finger across this now image of the page you were just looking at, highlight the section. And then immediately it just pops in there. I've found no errors so far. Yeah. The recognition is fantastic. And then you can even catalog the page number it was on. You can put notes into it. You Tags, can search for yep. it. Yeah, it's really pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it's cool because it uses the character recognition that it has built into it to identify what it thinks you probably are trying to highlight based on where you click on the screen. Uh, so like it'll, it can detect paragraph breaks. It can detect punctuation. Yep. It tries to match up to sentences. Um, the one thing that I found is a little bit dicey is it, it often catches the other facing page and includes that as part of the line. So you have to do a little bit of work to like go back through and clean up some of it. But honestly, for me, that's actually part of my workflow now because I take, I take it, I don't worry about cleaning it up in the moment. And then maybe once or twice a week, I go through and I, or this is what I'm planning on doing. I discovered this app yesterday, so I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, but I go through and I clean up the quotes. I export them. I do a little bit of reflection and I distill it into like my own thoughts in a separate note. And that helps you to kind of retain it. I also just read another book called Digital Zedek, Zetel Gestan, Kestan, I don't even know, Z-E-T-T-E-L. <laughs> K E Q R L M N O P Stan. I don't know. But um, this process, he calls it highlighting the highlights, 
going through and re reviewing your highlights and then kind of within the highlight itself, distilling out from that highlight, what it is that you want to take away from it. I know like you're absolutely right. Like I, I highlight books and then I'm, I, I hit a point in the book where I'm like, I'm never going to go back and look at this. So if right. you look at my books, it's always like <laughs> the first 30% of the book has highlights and then there's nothing. Right. Cause I just stopped doing it. Cause I'm like, I'm never going to do this. It's a waste of time. All it does is slow me down. I, I would be better off just reading more and actually like the act of highlighting and slowing down, even if you don't go back is useful. This kind of bridges that gap where like you, you can take the picture quick, you can capture your highlight, you can easily capture which page it's on. So if you do need to go back and clean it up, you can find it easily and it slows you down enough to make you think. And then that review process of going through and cleaning it up really locks it into place. Right on. So yeah, it's a sweet that. app. I haven't found it. It's totally free. I haven't found any premium features that they're going to make you, pay for i mean maybe it's going to get to a point where like after you take a certain number of highlights it's like by the way if you want more highlights but they have to disclose that stuff and that's not i didn't see any of that in the app description so it's free there's no no harm in trying it and i really do think and it's not like locked into a weird file format um it's it's just a text file or a, a markdown file that you can export it's not like a weird proprietary file so you have to keep using this app um, it really seems like there's no strings to it. So check it out. It's called Highlighted. As far as I know, it's only available in the Apple iOS uh, ecosystem. Sorry, Android people. Uh, it's just, that's just life. It's too bad. <laughs> it's just life. It's too bad. This is how sin works. There are exclusions. Yeah. App, 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 Adventures in Romans 1. The app that I want to use, I cannot use, but I keep finding myself using apps I... <laughs> I suppose that's not Romans 1, that's Romans 7, but... Yeah, good call, good call. Only here would that joke land so well, and also only here would you parse that out, even Mm -hmm. though it was just in jest. Our whole audience is laughing really hard right now, and then the people in their (laughs) office are like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, he said Romans 1, he meant Romans 7. Yeah. So what about you? What are you affirming today? I'm also going to go app on this episode, and I'm just doubling down, because while the app you just spoke about highlighted is free... I'm going to recommend again, or at least affirm with an app that costs a little bit of money, but it is well worth it. So I'm going back to the Dwell app. And if you go to dwellapp.io, you may have remember from before that this is an auditory or an audio Bible app, but it's like not your grandparents' audio Bible app, if that was a thing. It's got it's basically a curation of the scriptures with 10 different voices and various versions. It has originally composed music, so it can create an ambiance as you're reading. There is now, I'm kind of doubling down on this because they recently integrated a read-along feature. So you can actually have the text will come up in front of you if you want to read along as it's read to you. I have just been taking an inventory in my life, and so much of my phone apparently is part of my life. And so I've been looking at the apps I really use and I found that this is one of them because it just is so easy to, to use this app to get in the habit of whether you have 10 minutes in the car or you're waiting for something or you're even working on something to pull up the scripture and have it read to you. And I love that there are plans, there are curation of stories and passages. Sometimes, you know, one of the things I've been doing recently is listening to these curated lists. So there'll be a list of just about, let's say, on justification or encouragement or salvation and it's actually so lovely to hear all these scriptures read to you in a certain vein, especially if you just need some encouragement that day, or you're going to use that to meditate on some aspect of who God is. So I find this app to just be so wonderful. It does cost money. And as we're recording this, 
it's $30 per year or, and Tony, you know how much I love this. You do. Or there's a lifetime option. The lifetime option is currently priced at $150 and loved ones. That's like an expensive Bible. And and this is like really worth it. I, I mean, we don't get any sponsorship from this. I just think this is just so nice to have the scriptures in your ears whenever you would like it. And especially if you're a person that maybe struggles with concentration and reading the scriptures, this is a wonderful way, even in your own devotional life, to have the scripture in front of you as you look through it and have somebody reading it to you. That double focus of seeing the words with your eyes and hearing with your ears is just so beautiful and glorious. What a time to be alive. So I'm affirming once again with the Dwell Bible app. Yeah. I um I haven't used it. I used, I tried it out the last time that you suggested it. Um, I think it's an awesome app. For me, it wasn't worth the cost, but for some people like yourself who who get a lot of value out of it, thirty dollars uh, is not all that much money for a year, and one hundred and fifty dollars for a lifetime subscription to something like this is really not that much money. When you think about how easy it is for us to blow one hundred and fifty dollars on something else uh, that isn't isn't life-giving in the way that uh, the scriptures are, uh, you definitely could, you know, you definitely could use that money in a way that is uh, beneficial uh, in this sense. So yeah, it's a, it's a great app. I do love the different voices. I love how there's uh, voices from different countries, not just your standard, like there's a British voice and there's an Australian <laughs> voice and there's an Irish voice, but right. there's like an East African voice yes. or a German voice or like, so there's all sorts of different voices and the music is nice. I mean, it's a really well put together system and app and it's, it is, it's pretty cool. Get that scripture in your ears. Yes. So if you're looking for something like that, this is well worth it. I know there are other, I've used so many times before, kind of the freer version of these types of things. Like I know even you version has a red yeah. version. They just don't compare. For me, it always got in this place of like, it was either kitsch or corny or too formal. And so like you said, I love that even as you look up the voices, they're categorized. There's like a, a component, a dynamic comp- description of them. So the East African voice is described as energetic and warm. Yeah. Gregory, who does the ESV, he's North American, dramatic and storyteller. So again, like if you're feeling like, hey, that's a little easy, Gregory, that's a little bit too much. <laughs> you go back to Felix, who's going to give you that, that warm sense. So it's just, I just think there's, we should be able to get more in the habit of hearing the scriptures. So this idea that faith comes through hearing, of course, we're hearing that in the Lord's day. One of the things I've challenged myself with is how often do I sit under somebody reading the scriptures to me? That yeah. isn't me. And, and I think we're just, for most of history, people absorb the scriptures by hearing it from somebody else, either because they didn't have access to it, couldn't yeah. read, or for lots of other reasons. And so it's almost nascent for us to, like, all of our scripture consumption to be in our own heads as we read it. So this is just kind of, I think, a lovely way yeah. of returning in many ways to this idea that faith does come through hearing. And I just love this app. So yeah. everybody, go check it out. Yeah, that's a good a good uh, reminder to us that we are in a, this strange privileged place to be able to read the Bible ourselves. So of course, get after it, get a get into the Word get with your some. eyes. But um, the predominant method of appropriating and receiving the Scriptures throughout church history has been to hear the Word, not to read the Word. Um, you know, Paul doesn't say. Uh, how will they know unless they, you know, our faith comes, faith comes by hearing, not by seeing, right? He says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I heard a, I'm not sure which show it was the other day, but an interesting remark on a podcast that we think about being a Berean 
which first of all, that that's a weird application of that passage <laughs> in my opinion. But we talk about being a Berean and we think about searching the scriptures and our first instinct is to think about like us sitting down with our Bibles and maybe a commentary, but probably not just ourselves and the Bible really digging in it. But the reality is that the Bereans probably searched the scripture by hearing it preached uh, on the Lord's Day. That's probably what what the text is talking about when it says that they searched right. the scriptures to see if these things were true. Right. They they probably like their elders probably went to the Old Testament and said, "All right, this is what Paul exactly. is saying. So we're gonna we're gonna bring the word to you, and then as a community, we're gonna talk about what it means, and we're gonna search the scriptures together." But the idea that like in the first century, all these first century Hellenists, uh, you know, Greek Jewish people went back and got their own Torah scrolls out. That's just not reality. So for people who kind of like poo poo the idea of an audio podcast or an audio Bible podcast, something like that, this really is the way that the church has, has received the scriptures or most of the church has received the scriptures through history. So it's a, it's a great resource. It's, it's out there. Um, there are other apps, but this one does a really, really great job. Yeah, right on. And if you don't mind, I'm going to piggyback off that and switch us into the other side of the coin, which is the denials, because that kind of fits in with where I wanted to go for my denial. And on this episode, I'm denying against not understanding where we've been in the past. And that's exactly kind of what you were saying there. And this came up for me recently. I just think there's a lot of church practices, even my own life, where they become so disassociated with where we've been as a church historically that I just forget to think, what did my fathers and our forefathers, how'd they understand this? What did they do? And the further back we go, the closer we get, of course, to Christ, the original practices of the church, I think the more helpful it is for us to remember that kind of thing. So for me, where this kind of resonated this past week is I'm on this kick right now. You know this by kind of derivative. I'm on this kick right now where I'm like deep into the Lord's Supper and I'm, I'm looking at how the early church was practicing and understanding the Lord's Supper. And for me, this came about because I just felt like evangelicalism is too much memorializing yeah. the Lord's Supper and that the language, even when people say, no, that's not, there is a real presence here. Even if you want to go Lutheran, even if you want to go Catholic, at least there is a firm sense of understanding what they're doing in the Lord's Supper. And what I found just in general evangelicalism is all of the language is like really, I would say extreme memorial type language. Right. And I think there's, when I say, when I've often talked with friends about this and said, sounds like we're just memorializing it. They'll be like, I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, we're supposed to do this in memory of be like, okay, well that's a loaded phrase. Like let's, let's talk about how the early church understood what that was. There was like a real presence. They'd actually just come from celebrating the Lord's Supper with the Lord who had a real presence manifest in that supper. And the transmutation of all that happens in Exodus and in the Passover. So it's bringing together the Old and the New Testament and I would say the older early church and where we are now. So I'm really kind of just denying against this like, listen, people. Just because we are older or further along in the course of time doesn't mean we got we're getting this stuff right. In fact, we may be pulling away right. from what was the early, the strongest, most you know had like the strongest fidelity in terms of representation of what the scriptures teach. Yeah, yeah. The question you have to ask is: Yes, we do this in remembrance, but what are we doing in remembrance? Are we eating bread and wine, right. or are right. we partaking of the body and blood of Christ? Now different non-memorialist traditions parse that out in different ways, obviously. But the the dominant testimony of not just the early church, but if you want to be honest, like the dominant testimony of the church now, even the Protestant world, 
is is more than a memorial. Um, I think in in evangelical circles, it feels like that's the majority. But when you take into account all the Lutherans, all the Presbyterians, all the Reformed, the Dutch Reformed, the Continental Reformed, all of the Methodists, all of the, um, you know, all of the uh, other kinds of non-memorializing groups, you really do end up, I mean, the the Reformed Baptists, even like the the more particularized Baptists, the more 1689 flavor of Baptists, even those groups, you still are, are not just remembering, you know, it's not just an empty symbol. There's there's something going on there. There's a real feasting on on Christ's body and blood that goes beyond just symbolism. And um, yeah, it, it really is something to think about. And, uh, you know, if you want to think about that more, we happen to have done a whole <laughs> series did. on this. So check it out. <laughs> I don't have the pod. I don't have the numbers because we'd never. Nobody this does. Stuff. But you can go to reformbrotherhood.com, go to see all episodes and there's a little search box. You can just find whatever you're looking for. Backslash logos. Because yes. we own that. <laughs> Making a little note to myself to make a redirect for that site because it doesn't exist and it needs to. This might just be a denial that's like masquerading as really just me being upset about memorialism. So in all fairness, that, yeah, that's, that's that okay. could be what this is. But it's it's just something that I've been evaluating the language around the Lord's Supper. And you know, I've talked about this. Like, I just think we should always continually want more with the Lord's Supper in the sense right. that we want to understand it more. We want to acknowledge that there is mystery, but we don't want to just like kind of toss the baby out with the bathwater on that and just say, well, and also because like I've heard so much language recently that makes me sad because it speaks of the Lord's Supper as like something we're doing to recenter ourselves, something that we're doing to, as Paul says, we're examining ourselves and this is that opportunity to get right with the Lord. And I'm thinking, no, 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 like that. It's not all of that. The, the part of the reason why we're examining ourselves is because we're about to partake in something where we're going to experience the real presence of God. And I, I think at this point, would rather make an error and in, in, oh, we're just going to trigger the Lutherans. Here we go. I would rather make the error of saying that there is some corporal presence there because at least there is a full understanding that this is a supper of communion, actual yeah. communion, than to say that it's just something that we do because we forget. So this is like the statue or the tombstone that we erect in our minds and our behaviors and our actions once a month or once a week or whatever, just so we can remember properly that Jesus died for us. Even if you're saying, well, I'm remembering the gravity of that sacrifice. There is something that we should be receiving in the Lord's table. And I think we would agree as we talked about that series, that is a real, there's a real spiritual presence there, but I don't hear a lot of that being expounded upon. Yeah. And it makes me sad. It makes it feel like it's a, people get the impression it's just another activity. It's another tradition and it's a good tradition, but it's another tradition that we just do. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. All right. So what about you? Enough, enough about memorializing. The Lord's Supper. I mean, not enough about it, but you know what I'm saying. So I feel like this is a, like a reversal of of roles here, because usually I'm the one that has like a super serious theological denial, yes, and then you come in, you're like, yeah, happens. I'm denying cicadas. <laughs> like, I'm denying... Uh, so I, I tried to make... I, I'm just, uh, my denial is a story about how inept I am at cooking. So I'm denying my own cooking skills. Today, I tried to make grilled cheese and tomato soup, because those things are delicious, and we just yeah, got are. this really awesome new digital George Foreman grill, which is amazing. Uh, by the way, that's like a sub-affirmation. Go buy one of these digital George Foreman grills. They're sweet. Uh, so the grilled cheese was totally on point. 
It was amazing. It was delicious. Perfectly cooked. I used the mayo like you suggested. It was awesome. Oh, uh, nice. But at the same time, I'm trying to make tomato soup. And now, like, let's not let's not get overly uh, grandiose about this. This is like Campbell's tomato soup. Like, put it in a put the soup in a pot and pour some water in it and then like heat it up kind of soup. Well, I got distracted doing something with the with the cheese or something. And all of a sudden, the tomato soup completely boils over the top of the pot. And like, you know, like when it does that, if it's water, like if it's water that's boiling over, you just kind of leave it. And you're like, yeah, sometime we'll get under there and we'll clean it up. But this is like like thick tomato soup. You can't just leave it. So I had to like take the whole stove apart. I had to like clean everything. And it was like a whole ordeal. So I'm just denying my own. I mean, on the other hand, like the stove is really clean right now, which is awesome. But like (laughs) I'm denying my own ineptitude of just not paying attention. Like the simplest, stupidest little thing. Like the one direction on the can is stir. That's the only thing you have to remember to do is to (laughs) stir it occasionally. And that's literally like the one thing I forgot to do. So that's my denial. My own my own lame cooking skills. No, that's all good. I thought you were actually talking about making like homemade soup because I know you've done that as well. I've done that in the crock pot. That's different. But no, this is just Campbell's pouring in a like literally it's it's dump the soup in a pot and then dump a can <laughs> of water in the pot, stir it and heat it up. That's it. That's those are the directions. And I screwed it up. So, I mean, it was fine. I just didn't have as much of it as we should have because like a third of it ended up inside the stove. I used to be so much better at cooking. And by so much like this is like, you know, when somebody's like, well, this thing increased 100%. You always have to ask, well, where did it start? Because from going one to two is 100%. But I say that because I used to be better at cooking when I was totally single and actually had to make my own food. Then I married an amazing woman who is an amazing cook. And now whenever I have to catch up or she's, you know, at a a meeting or something or she's home late, I'm going to make the food. I feel like a child yeah. <laughs> in the kitchen. Like I get, I, I used to remember I could look at a recipe and feel mostly confident and do this stuff. Now it's like, I have to go back and forth several times. I get like totally flustered about like the order of things. I feel sometimes overwhelmed. Cause you know, like recipes will have like, of course a list of ingredients and then all the instructions. Right. And sometimes you have to like cross-reference that stuff. You know what I mean? You're in the middle of a process and you're like, all right, am I where I'm supposed to be right now? Did I just do something out of order and then the backtrack up? I constantly find myself doing that, yeah. revisiting the whole thing. And then I, I feel like I never make the food as good as she does. So I, I'm sure with practice I could do that. But I just, I did realize recently, I was like, oh man, I'm a child again. What yeah. happened here? Yeah. I mean, your wife is an excellent cook, so I'm sure that you can't make the food as good as she can. But, <laughs> That's actually correct. But yeah, I, I just, I don't know what it is. I mean, we used to do like HelloFresh or whatever it is and, and we would, I would screw those recipes up too. And it was like, <laughs> the worst is when a recipe is like, like it, it tells you the total amount of like, let's say basil you need. Right. Yeah. And, but like, you're only supposed to use part of it for one step and part of it for another step. Yeah. Stuff like this. I always put the whole thing in for the first step. And then I'm like, right. oh, uh, hmm. Do I just, you, do I get more basil or do I just like leave it? What do I do? And it's always like terrible. It just tastes disgusting. So the moral I'm of the sure story you're... is that's why I, that's why the, the people at the pizza place like recognize my car. <laughs> so pizza is also delicious. Pizza is delicious. Yeah. It, it's also delicious. Yeah. That's all. Actually, that is the one thing that I can do. That's pretty much it. But That's again, true. we're talking about like the easiest of things. You smush dough, you, you put sauce and cheese it. on it. Yeah. You put it into an oven, you take it out of said oven. That's true. That's all that it takes. Pizza cooking is like a whole family ritual with your family though. It's like 
there's yeah. all this discussion like who's going to help with the pizza and like how many pizzas <laughs> are we going to get? We're going to put funny. are we going to put jalapenos on this pizza or not? And then we Usually cook it all up, we slice it all up, and then it's like all right, which which pieces had the jalapenos and which ones didn't? And and we figure it out when someone is like, I don't want a spicy piece, and then their face starts turning red. It's like a whole thing. I mean, I love it. I love every bit about it, but it it's a whole thing. That's a great observation from the outside of my family. We do. I, I never really thought about that, but we do. The pizza thing is like a big deal for it some is. reason. How many are there going to be? What's going to be on the top of them? Are we going to use oil? Who's doing it? Because yeah. I make it slightly different than my father does. Yeah. He likes to make it. So it always gives me a hard time about how I do it. Yeah. It's great. It's a whole, it's a whole process. It By is. the way, before we transition into ordination, which we, you know, should do we should talk about this conversation. Yeah. I wanted to say, I feel like I have to, con- I feel like I have to confess this, even though like you're not putting pressure on me. You don't even know what I'm about to say. But when you talked about the Bereans earlier, I, for some reason in my mind, I don't know where this came from. I think it's because when you see the word Berean, it's in my mind, it's close to another word. And this is embarrassing because it's, the spelling is similar. The sound is more similar to me, but I always picture it, I'm telling the truth. Like I, I've never told, told this to anybody, so not even my right wife. Now. Not even my wife. It's what's well, ridiculous. So that's, why I'm, that's why I'm admitting it. Is I always pictured the Bereans in berets. To me, those two words go together. So, like, I always picture, and I know that's ridiculous, but when somebody says Berean, I actually have to think, don't think berets. That's not what they're talking about. It's like the green green Bereans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're like oh, the elites, the elite Bible that's, readers. That's pretty good. Yeah, I feel like again, there's a there's a VBS skit somewhere in here. There's a whole VBS program there yeah, where the like you get Bereans. to wear the Berean beret. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. the thing. So oh, yeah, I, sure. I actually have to tell myself, don't think of berets. We're talking about the Bereans. Yeah. I need you to figure out how to copyright that because that's a brilliant VBS idea and we can make millions. Millions. Mil- yeah. Billions. One billion dollars. Yes. I don't, you don't own a beret, do you? I mean, it's kind of no, a weird. I don't even own hair. You don't need to have hair to have a beret, though. Is that that's not how it works. I don't know. I mean, I I mean, it's I don't think I could pull that off. I think there's like very few people that could. Perhaps the Bereans could. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's all together. But I'm telling you, in my mind, when people talk about the Bereans, I always picture them with wearing berets. I have to subtract that, and then I get nervous when talking about it. Then we use the word beret instead of Berean. I'm just True picturing all of the awkward situations you could find yourself in. It's pretty awesome. True confession. It's one of those anxieties that I construct in my own mind. I get myself so worked up about it that I, I'm literally like, this is not a real fear for, it shouldn't be for anybody. And in many ways, it's not for me, except that I just get like, don't, you know, it's like that thing. Like, don't think about purple elephants yeah. or don't misspeak this person's name. And the first thing you do is misspeak it. So I feel like uh, this is one of those things. I've, I think I've shared this before. This is one of those things that I feel like uh, someone who has like no background in the Bible would be common to like come and make this <laughs> yes. mistake. Yeah. Because like it's like when I first became a Christian and my like first exposure to biblical concepts was like the song Jesus Freak by DC Talk. And I could not figure out what a Pharisee was. And in my mind, I was sure that it was the plural for Pharaoh. Like that just, that was the connection uh, I made. It had to be. Yeah. Because exactly that was the only like thing I, like, I was like, what's in the Bible? Like the Pharaoh, Pharaohs are in the Bible. Like I've seen right. the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. So I just figured that that was the plural, that the Pharaohs were all freaking out about this dude with a big tattoo on his stomach. So little that's did good. I know that that's, that's not, good. not what it was. So, that's, that's the same thing. So yeah. we'll work on the VBS program or if somebody else would like to support us now, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Or we'll maybe we want to, we want to write a book called if you give a Berean a beret, something like that. 
I think we'd yes, also be and helpful. the enemies of the Bereans we know are the the pharaohs, the the plural pharaohs, pharaohs, which we call Pharisees. <laughs> Pharisees. <laughs> All right, let's let's just hard transition into our topic because I feel like we're not going to make it if we don't just just full stop. Oop, I just hit the microphone. Full stop. Affirmations and denials are over. Now we're talking about ordination. So Jesse. Uh, this is my topic, so I probably should intro it myself. So when when Go we were kind of th- when I was thinking through these topics, right? We we did the church discipline series, which was just two episodes uh, we did uh, before vacation with the sort of like guest casts, and uh, that all really started because I was listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the um, podcast that Christianity Today is is putting out, and I was reflecting particularly on what do we do and how do we think about these high-profile, what really end up being high-profile church discipline cases, right? Mark Driscoll was a particular kind of high-profile church discipline case. Tulian Tavidian was a particular kind of high-profile church discipline case. And so this is kind of like the logical endpoint of this, is talking about ordination, because my initial thoughts on the subject were in the context of one pastor who was not ordained in any sense of the word, Mark, in one of the clips that they play, he was kind of saying it tongue in cheek, but it was true. When he planted Mars Hill, he had never been a pastor or even a member of a church. So he started a church without ever having been a member of a church, let alone been a pastor or been ordained. And he he was not ordained. They didn't do an ordination service. Um, And he is not ordained at uh, Trinity Church, which isn't really a church. It's not even incorporated as a church. Um, so that this is kind of the logical outflow of it. And this is in many ways just the flip side of the discussion about what we talked about last week about church membership, because so much of our argument in favor of church membership is wrapped up in this relationship that happens between the, the elders of a church, specifically the pastor of a church, and the members of the church. This accountability relationship, these covenant vows that are sworn between these two parties, that the the the... Um, you know, there's there's a covenant we make or a covenant we're in with God, the covenant of grace. But then there are sort of these sub-covenantal vows that, that bring us into relationship in a very particular kind of way with other Christians in a particularized local gathering or local congregation of Christians. And ordination is in many ways the flip side of that congregational vow. This is where the pastor comes and is recognized by the church as the pastor, is recognized as someone who God has called into the ministry, and who swears vows to be accountable to a certain group of people and be accountable for a particular group of people. So I wanted to talk about this to just kind of round out the series series a little bit because it's really important to talk about. And I think you're right. Like I don't think I don't think I've ever heard a, a podcast, a theological podcast, really talk about this. I've listened to several lectures and sermons about ordination, but I don't think I've heard kind of from like the kind of two guys talking about theology podcast perspective, this conversation at all. Like I just haven't. So I think it's something that a lot of, when when it comes up in conversations online, most commonly it's in like who can baptize someone, who can do the Lord's Supper, um, or who can preach. Most commonly people haven't really thought in any real sense about why we do ordination or what it is. And it, it ends up being very similar to how we think about membership in terms of like, there are the people who just sort of recognize that ordination is an important biblical concept. And then there's the people who, who say something, well, I don't really see ordination in the Bible, so I don't think we should do it. Or I don't think I don't recognize it. And, and the conversation ends up being almost identical is it's the same kind of situation. Right. 
Yeah. I just well did said. Like a hand signal. <laughs> there was like, like a, a hand, hand signal to Jesse there. to be like, I'm done talking. Now you should talk. <laughs> I've well, been watching sure Friends was... a lot lately, so like the Ross hand signals. Ah, got you. Yeah. That's that's what that came from. It yeah. was beautiful. I wish people could have seen what I just saw. There was it was flourishing. There was a lot of movement to it. it. So that's why I was like, wait a second, what's happening right now? It wasn't quite jazz hands. It was like it was like a presentation of a gift. Yes. It was yeah. more presentation. I would say more Vanna White style. Mm, but it was maybe. but it Vanna was Vanna White is like yeah, that <laughs> this is great podcasting. This is great podcasting. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to describe the hand motion that I just made, so we're just going to pretend I didn't. So, yeah, Jesse. That was great. I was caught off guard. Back to edit. you, Jesse. We don't edit. I was totally surprised by that beautiful hand gesture. Yes, I think what you're saying is really interesting. Incidentally, when Mark Driscoll said all those things, and he didn't just say that once, that was kind of like something right. that he wore in his sleeve. Now, I think in hindsight, but we should have seen it even more so then, he was kind of saying all that stuff in jest. I mean, he was almost really poking fun or kind right. of bringing some criticism against like this old way of thinking where it was like, what we need now is like these new ways of having biblical, right. quote unquote, biblical leaders coming in and opening up churches and places where we really need churches. And that old way is outmooted, unnecessary, or maybe even unhelpful. And of course, we've seen a lot how that, how that ended. I think that in our kind of modern understanding, we generally think of this definition of ordination as some kind of like investiture of clergy, just establishing power and authority or this act of granting like pastoral, I guess authority, but I would say like more formally, like the sacerdotal power, like again, that there's a member of the quote unquote cloth who is going to have some authority to exercise over a group of people. What I find really interesting though, is that we seldom get to a place of biblical theology with respect to ordination. What is it that the Bible teaches about this? And then how are we applying it? And when you go from just, first, there's a problem, of course, if we're not consulting the scriptures and passing everything through that sieve in terms of understanding of what ordination is, even asking, is ordination a thing that the Bible promotes? That's one problem. But the second problem is, as you've said, sometimes Christians aren't curious enough in their own denominations, their own churches, where that authority is granted and by whom. So in the case of, you know, for some, for instance, a lot of denominations have a process of granting ordination, this power to the preacher. Some churches establish it on their own, and then some churches don't even require it altogether. And so we ought to say, well, if the Bible has a definition for it, then because we see the disparity in the variety and how it's applied, some are right and some are wrong. Yeah. So we've got to figure this out. So I would say to kind of kick us off, as as you already had, but to add that just a little bit, I would say... What's interesting to me is, of course, the Bible has a broader definition. This is mostly the case. We talk about a concept. We think about this ordination very narrowly. But, of course, the word ordain is in the Bible. And everywhere it's referring to a setting in place or designation. For example, even going back into way into the Old Testament, you know, Joseph, the scriptures tell us Joseph was ordained as a ruler in Egypt. The steward in Jesus' parable was ordained to oversee a household. Deacons were ordained to serve the church in Jerusalem. I feel like I'm forgetting some others. Pastors were ordained in each city in Crete. And so in none of those cases is there like a mode of ordination specified, but ordinations are these appointments writ large, and they're appointments from God that come with a sense of authority. So the question I think ahead of us is, so how are we understanding that in our local church bodies? And how do we understand that with respect to this idea of, of church discipline, which I like what you said. It's basically the other side of the coin. Right. Yeah. And so in order to understand ordination, you really have to understand kind of this theology of call to ministry, right? right. I, think, I think that's one of those phrases that a lot of people in the evangelical reformed dish world— um, and kind of like lay reform people, 
they they hear this phrase about being called to ministry. I'm called to ministry. And because of the influence of things like Billy Graham, like, you know, like, uh, like Finney, like Finney. this evangelistic revivalism stuff, this extra ecclesial stuff, even, even, you know, I haven't gotten no major gripes with George Whitfield, but even, even George Whitfield sort of operating outside of the ordinary circumstances of the church, right? All of those things have led to this place where evangelicals think about the call, quote unquote, call to ministry in this very ethereal, spiritual way. And there's certainly an element of that, right? But what we don't realize is that historically speaking, and this is because this is what I I believe the Bible reflects in terms of what the Bible does say about ordination, which we're not going to have time to go into all of the specifics or really any of the specifics about this from a scriptural perspective. But what the, what the historical testimony is, is that the, the call to ministry is a combination of two things. It's the inward call that the Holy Spirit places on a man to go into formal ministry. And that must be matched by an external call from the church. And that external call is both a recognition of the validity of that internal call, but it's also, uh, and I'm getting a lot of this, that I'm really, really deeply influenced by Albert Martin on this. He he did a series, uh, a five-part series at his church on this that I'll, I'll um, you can find it on uh, Sermon Audio. It's called A Call to Ministry. It's Albert Martin. And he goes through all of this and all the biblical texts in much more detail, which is why I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to unpack that because he does a much better job than I can, but I'm really influenced by it. So to, to ward off any accusations of plagiarism, if you hear his voice coming through, it's because I've been really influenced by it. But this outward call is matching the inward call and confirming it, but it's also a providential appointment to a particular office. So I may feel called to ministry and I, I do, right. I feel called to pastoral ministry, but until I actually have a physical outward call, a real concrete call from a church, I can't actually say that I'm called to ministry. I can say that I believe I have an inward call. I can say that in certain senses, that inward call has been ratified by my congregation because I've been asked to preach. I've been asked to serve as an elder. I've been asked to do certain things that seem to be the church ratifying that. But until there's a formal recognition, an outward call uh, of that outward call and an actual call to a position of ministry, then that, that call isn't real. And so what we think about, and the reason this is important, this call to ministry is important, is because that ordination really is just the final, like the termination point of that call. It's the church finally recognizing that call and formalizing it. So this takes different forms in different denominations, right? In most Baptist circles, that that ordination is the congregation ordains an, an elder to a right. particular office, right? Ordains a pastor, teaching pastor to an office. And so that that is laypersons predominantly, usually by means of congregational vote. Sometimes there's other mechanisms, but normally that ordination takes place by the local congregation, not necessarily by other ordained men. In Presbyterian circles or more um, connectional circles, I don't want to say hierarchical because that's not really right, but Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed, those kinds of situations, that ordination is done by other ordained elders. So ordained men, ordained men is kind of the way to remember that. Um, But in both cases, it's the church recognizing and formally investing authority and recognition of gifting, recognition of that internal call. And so that internal call that a man feels, right, this this 
internal Jeremiah talks about like I I tried not to preach but it was like a fire in my bones there's this uh, there's this pressure to preach this pressure to be in ministry that comes from the Holy Spirit that is always going to be met by both an external confirmation of that from the church and a providential opening for that gift to be expressed. That may not always be pastoral ministry. Sometimes it's filling pulpit supply or teaching Sunday school, whatever it might be. But there, those things are always in place when you have a valid biblical call. And that's really important because when we see in some of these high-profile cases, Tulian is an exception, I think, in this because he was validly ordained by a body. But, but Mark Driscoll... Uh, Doug Wilson never had a valid ordination or call. There was never a point where the church recognized it. They may have done something now. I, I don't know if, if Christ Church has had some sort of formal recognition ordination of of um, Doug. But when he first went into ministry, he just kind of took over the church. And then later on said, like, well, these elders confirmed it. And those elders, like, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, but Mark, especially, he didn't have any sort of external call. There wasn't anything. And I think if you look at a lot of church church planters who are not part of some sort of planting organization, right, there are a lot of people who just go start churches. They, they just decide to do it. They just go start right. a church. Or they start a Bible study in their living room, and more and more people start coming, and eventually they just start calling it a church. The problem with that is that although in a certain sense the people who are in that Bible study, when they decide to sort of incorporate it as a church and start calling themselves of a church, in a certain sense, they've identified this person as their pastor. That's a sort of confirmation. The Bible, I think, really has more of a formal, kind of like we talked about with membership. There's a more formal process in place that seems to be in place. The Bible talks about the laying on of hands. Paul tells Timothy to fan into flames the gift that was, you know, that was conveyed to him in the laying on of hands. So there seems to be a formal process that the church engaged in. But it's so important because so many churches, and especially so many lay people, just don't have any concept of this stuff. And it is a major part of church discipline. Right on. Let's see how some of that like plays out in just one quick example with what you just said. So let's look to Acts 13, just briefly, just a couple of verses, because here is a good example of a ministerial appointment that I think proves the case that you've just set forward for us. So this is beginning in, in verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia. So here's a couple of verses that you could easily just fly by. And if you're a Christian for any length of time, you'd probably come across these and thought, yeah, I get it. All right. A ministry opportunity arises right. itself. God is obviously involved. But it's everything that you just said and packed into this is this wonder, formal, normative process that I think the Bible is promulgating and saying this is, again, is to protect the family of God fidelity to the scriptures and the preacher himself who's leading that congregation. So a couple of things we notice, which are right in line with what you said. First, it's God himself who calls the men to ministry and he qualifies them with gifts. So we're having a formal call that comes from God, that inward call, and that there is a passion there. There's a drive and it's a pure passion. It is not one for notoriety or for selfishness or for just even pure leadership purposes. But is God himself calling men to ministry, ministry of the word, right. prayer and of the word, those two things. Second is that the members of the church are recognizing God's clear leading and they embrace it. So I love what you said here. It's like this idea that it's one thing to say, it's almost as if we have to test that internal call in a way to verify it. 
to make sure it is viable. And by its acceptance in from the church, from the elders in the church in particular, there we have this confirmation. And that, again, is for the good of the person who is desiring the role as it is for the church itself. Right. Both of these are protective measures. Uh, and then the last thing, with prayer and fasting, here we have like the church laying hands on Paul and Barnabas to demonstrate that there is a formal commissioning, that there is wrapped up in this process as apex after this verification, after this confirmation of the call, they are sending them out. So God works through the church as both the church and the spirit are said to send missionaries, or in this case, send ministerial appointments, which may remain in their midst, but they're still sending them into that ministry. Sometimes I think that when people think about this idea of ordination, what they think it is, is like, well, that's like graduation for pastors. Like they've, they've finished a course of work. They've read a lot of books. They went before a committee. They said the right things. And it's so much more than that. It's actually a manifestation of this process that we see in Acts 19. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, just to put, you know, there's always this, this, uh, tension between Acts as descriptive and then the rest of the New Testament as prescriptive. And so just to point, uh, to Titus here, Titus chapter one, verse five, this is Paul writing to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is reminding Titus of the directions that he was given. Titus was sent out essentially to conduct a bunch of ordination services, right? That's what Titus is doing. He's going around in every town that he was assigned to, that he was appointed to, to now appoint elders and formally place them in position. And this is where it ties into church discipline, right? Because we talked in the Lord's Supper uh, series, we talked last week about how the church as an entity, and this is this is not exclusive to the church, any organization that is a collection of people operates through certain agents, certain authorized agents, and, and this is what ordination is. This is God appointing certain authorized agents to act on his behalf, right? So just, just to look, and this is a lot of the same stuff that we talked about last week, is that you have to understand that certain things in the New Testament are present implicitly because of the kind of church that it was when the New Testament was written. And so, for example, in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. He says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting uh, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So a lot of times we hear this, and this is preached as though this is a direct... A gift or imparting or assignment that's given to every Christian. And there's a certain by extension way that that's true. But then going on in verse 20, it says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Right? So, so Paul has these two, two groups of people in mind. There's the we, which Paul, I think the only logical conclusion is Paul and the apostles or Paul and those in his sort of ministry team, the people that are traveling with him that are engaged in this ministry, there's them. And then there's the Corinthians, right? And so if, if what this is saying is that all Christians are equally given the ministry of reconciliation and that there's no place for this sort of, I don't want to say special because that implies like 
a higher elevated class. But like this set aside group of people, this set aside class of people who are to engage in formal ministry, if that is not a thing, then him saying we implore you to be reconciled to God, that we you dynamic doesn't make any sense in the context of this really ultra extreme um, priesthood of all believers where even the pastors and the lay people are exactly the same. There's no distinction. Right. So even in this context, we see that there is a ministry, a ministering group and a ministered to group. And again, all Christians are supposed to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation in different ways. And so we see this in the New Testament in various places where there is this, this sort of like fingerprint of the fact that there is this group of people that are set aside by God and recognized by the church as such in a particular way for the work of ministry that your average everyday Christian is not. And that fundamentally is what we're talking about with ordination. We're talking about God sets a man aside. He sets him aside and gives him this outward call. And then through other authorized agents of the church, that inward call is recognized and formalized. And then this person becomes now a, an agent of uh, the church. They become an authorized agent of the church. Uh, you know, I, I, when I podcast here, I sit in front of, uh, I sit at my desk and above my desk sits my diplomas from Gordon Conwell. And I'm going to read what it says, because I think this is directly applicable. It says, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, it says, The president and faculty of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, by authority of the Board of Trustees and, ex and exercise of the powers granted by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, hereby confer upon Antonio Arsenal the degree of church history or theology. Right? Where that is important is it's the faculty. It's authorized people who already have degrees. Right? It's not... Gordon Conwell as some abstract principle. It's not the state of Massachusetts in abstract. It's this group of people who likewise have been invested authority now invest that authority in others, right? So I have, I mean, I know that academics is weird and it's kind of this weird illusory authority. It's not, it's not actually a real authority. This piece of paper doesn't actually get me anything. But the power to confer a degree on someone comes from people who have degrees likewise. And the, the church ordination is a similar concept. In Baptist circles, that power is held by the church at large, right? It's, it's held by the congregation as a whole, right? But it's still a group that has been given authority by God to then confer authority on others. In Presbyterian circles, it's a it's a group of ordained elders, and those elders confer that authority that they have, have had themselves conferred to, they confer that on others. And this is where it becomes important, is because this, this authority that is given to them by the church, this is the power of the keys, right? This is the power to, to declare what has been bound and what has been loosed, to declare that and proclaim that and recognize that, not to bind, not to loose, but to recognize what has been bound and to recognize what has been loosed, primarily by the preaching of the gospel. This is the power of the keys. And that is ultimately what church discipline about is about, is the church exercise, exercising the power of the keys. So when we lose this theology of ordination or this theology of a, of a call to ministry that involves not only the inward call, which is the predominant thing that people think of, but also right. this outward call to ministry of the church recognizing and edifying your gifts and acknowledging them. When we lose that, then all of the foundation for church ministry is, or for church discipline is lost. You know, when I was going through some of these, um, 
some of these confessions when I was doing the sort of tweet through the confessions projects I was working on. It amazed me because this this connection between preaching and pastoral office and church discipline and the Lord's Supper and baptism, this nexus of concepts that I think at first blush, most evangelicals or newly reformed people, they don't really see how those things are connected at all. But when you recognize that the marks of the true church are the, the proper preaching of the word, the proper execution of church discipline, and uh, the proper administration of the sacraments, those three things require you to have authorized, ordained elders in place to execute that discipline. So kind of like we said last week, if you are a person that thinks you, uh, you, you know, John Calvin is my homeboy, but then all of a sudden you are just totally in a different spot on something like ordination or church discipline or membership, recognizing that those are all kind of the same thing. They're all wrapped up in the same concept then really what you're doing is you're acknowledging that a significant portion of Reformed theology, and I would say probably like one of the more substantial elements of Reformed theology, of the doctrine of the church itself, right. you really are are off base if you're disagreeing in terms of like, I want to say John Calvin's theology of predestination is awesome. I love that. But his doctrine of the church, well, that's really not so great. Well, both those things are really tied into what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church and what it means to be called by God for salvation and for appointment to office. All those things are interconnected. Right. I'm hoping that this at least propels us a little bit more into maybe our own church documentation. I mean, our own yeah. local body. Take a look at the bylaws. Understand a little bit more about your pastors, about where they come from, right. what they did, how they obtain this kind of level of authority, because... All of this must work together. It's designed to work together fluidly. And But if you start to play with some of these pieces, then what you're going to find out is you can't, by messing with one, you mess with the others by right. default. And so that does become a big problem. It's why Paul spent all this time regularly ordaining pastors in all the churches he planted. And like you said, he's reaching out to Timothy and to Titus, and he's saying, like, this is what you need to do. Like, set in place the things that are still remaining, and what you need to set in place is this eldership, these appointed and called right. ones. And so we have a place to play in that, even as lay people, one, in the sense that we ought to be asking and affirming and understanding how this works in our own right. places of worship. But second, that if if you belong to a denomination, which is vouchsafed part of that verification to the congregation at large, which that would be fine in many places, then that means that we also need to be people who are prayerfully considering our leaders that we actually right. have. We, it presumes that we have discerning spirits because you can, you know, a bunch of people can be wrong about a particular thing. So, because I, it strikes me that even like in the new Testament, the ordination of elders often did involve a group of people, not just right. the apostles. In fact, like if you go to second Corinthians eight and you look at Titus's appointment and which is also recounted in Acts 14, you're going to see that like, the word that's being used for choosing the Galatian elders, literally the root is to stretch hands, to stretch like right. forth the hands. So it's like a word that was normally used for like voting in Athenian legislature. So we have again, a strong sense that what God wants from us to understand in these passages is that this verification is for real. It's a yeah. bit like we've used this example before. It's a bit like becoming a doctor, I suppose. You might feel like, I feel internally called to be a doctor. I love people. I want to help people. I feel like I have a good bedside manner. I don't mind blood. I'd like to give people shots, whatever. But until you go through a formal process of becoming a, a doctor and then have that verified, right. that, that basically 
that authority given to you by other doctors through like the whole board and certification process right. and paneling. That's only then and only then are really ordained as a doctor. Again, this idea of ordained being set in a particular place that God has called you to, that you there is an actual place for you to be, and that's been verified. All the examples I gave earlier, I want to throw those out there because if we think in that way, then we're not, in other words, we won't be inclined to think, well, ordination is manufacturing a spot for me in the church right. because I really want to do this thing. And I have a sense somewhere inside of me that this is what God wants. Like that is right. meaningless outside of the verification of the call, which we're saying is the outward call. Right. Yeah. And this is where it ties in just to kind of sort of like bring it all full circle. This is where it ties into people like Tulian or like uh, Mark Driscoll or, you know, in, in a certain sense, in a different sense, Doug Wilson, but like James McDonald, these kind of people. Um, the church basically said, we no longer recognize this, right? In in a, a particular way at Mars Hill, the elders of that church said, we don't think you're fit for ministry. We'd like to right. find, we'd like to engage in a process where you, you may are able to be made fit again for ministry. That was the process that Mark was like, now nah, I'll just go do it myself. Right. Um, when, when Tulian had his credentials revoked, when he was defrocked of his position or his, his ordination reversed, it was the church saying, although we once recognized that you were called of the ministry, you were called to the ministry, you had a valid calling, we recognized it, we validated, we ordained you. We have now reversed course. We have now decided that you are not called of ministry. And so when we as individual Christians, or even even worse in my mind, uh, and, and I, I think that people who are attending Mark Driscoll's church probably just don't, they just don't know any better. Like, it's just not a thing that general evangelicals think or talk about. When they attend his church or when we listen to his sermon as though he is a valid pastor, what we're basically doing is saying the church didn't really actually have authority to do that. Or we're saying the church totally got it wrong. And yeah, the church may have got it wrong. It's possible that the church got it wrong, I suppose. But we are then now circumventing the process that God has put in place. Removing an elder from his office is not something that should should be done lightly or frivolously or for reasons that are based on personality or based on disagreements in auxiliary matters, right? But when it's done, it's done with the authority of the church, which God has delegated to it. You're basically saying, it would be like if um, when you go to your doctor and your doctor's like, yeah, well, I have a board certification. I'm, bo I'm a board certified ne neurologist. And you're like, yeah, no, you're not. You're definitely not. <laughs> you're not a board certified you know, neurologist or the flip side, if your doctor, you go to, to some quack that the board has said, yeah, this dude is a total, total right. nut job right. and he's going to hurt you. And he's not a doctor. We don't recognize him as a doctor or a lawyer, right? The bar association is a similar kind of a concept. Right. If you go to that person, then what you're saying is like, yeah, all of these experts, all these people that, you know, have been trained, verified and validated, and they themselves have gone through rigorous testing. All those people, those guys are dumb. I know what's going on. Even though I have no medical training, even though I have no legal training, or or in a lot of cases, even though I have no theological training, I have no vested, no vested authority in this matter from the church or from God specifically. You're basically saying like the church doesn't know better than I do. 
Right. And there are times where Christians have to make a decision to say this particular group of Christians, I actually do understand the scriptures better than them and they're wrong. And so I'm going to have to go a different direction. That's something that we have to acknowledge that comes along with the idea of sola scriptura. But the reality is that we should really take those situations very carefully. And I think that that's just to sort of tie it all up, right? Church discipline fundamentally is about the about God exercising his authority over the church through these designated agents that we call pastors or elders, right? And and I'm a I'm becoming convinced of a two office eldership, right? There's teaching elders, there's ruling elders. Right. But even if you you have teaching ruling elders and it's one thing, through these designated agents that we call elders, right? And then in a different sense through these designated agents that we call deacons. It's a, an interplay between those things, those offices, those people who are acting as God's authorized agents, and then the people who are God's people that are part of the organization that fall under God's authority exercised through those agents. It's not that they fall under some autonomous authority that a group of elders has over these people. It's that they fall, they've submitted themselves to God's authority, which is exercised, as God usually does, through the means of ordained elders. And so we have to understand that church discipline is the interplay between those things, and we have to recognize that. Otherwise, we might as well just say, like, the church is just an informal association of like-minded people, right? Exactly. That's not what it is, right? Um, even something like Costco, we've kind of joked about church memberships not like Costco, <laughs> but, like, if you break the rules with your Costco membership, they're going to revoke your membership, Right? right. There's some sort of board that would review your case if it was brought to them. It would make a determination because they're authorized by the board of Costco, presumably, to do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I don't know the inner workings of how Costco's org structure is, but presumably there's some group of people that could make a decision and are authorized to do so and to revoke your membership. Because there's an agreement you've made with Costco as an entity, which is embodied in these exact these these. Uh, delegated agents to uh, adhere to a certain set of guidelines and to not break those. And if you break them, you're out. And the church is not so different that God has said, these are my people. And and to be a part of my people, I'm making you a part of my people by grace. I'm going to keep you a people, a part of my people by grace, right? I'm not, I'm not suddenly becoming federal vision, right? We're talking about visible categories here, but when you strike out from the visible church or when you have have committed grievous sin that marks you out as no longer part of the visible church, that authority of God to exclude you from the visible church is executed through the church and executed through our agents. And it, unless we are going to just stop saying that God has the authority to exclude people from the church, then we might as well just say we're like a loose affiliation of like like-minded people with no boundaries or de- or or definition of what that actually means. I just think we need to, all of us maybe, especially for some maybe who've not thought about this before, spend some time considering it, get to understand how it works in your own church, get to know your pastors a little bit better, ask them about the ordination process. I'm sure they would be love to speak about it because it's it usually is for many churches, many denominations, yeah. a process. And I'm sure they'd love to share how they're vetted to speak of their call, both the inward and the outward. I think that we just need to realize that in almost every other area of our lives, we seek after verified and qualified people who have been called and then vetted. So whether it's law, finance, or medicine, we're right. always looking for the person that essentially has been ordained. That's right. what ordination is. 
And so if we're going to look at that with something that is so temporal with our money or with a legal matter, why would we not bring that same kind of expectation into the spiritual realm where the consequences are all the more dire? And so I think that this, once again, when God lays this out, he's not trying to be overly restrictive. What he's saying is don't hurt yourselves. I know what's best for my family. I know what's best for my children. And this is the way it ought to be so that there is a loving protection and accountability among all involved. So appreciate your pastors a little bit and seek out this information, I would say, in your own church, because not only will it give you a better sense of understanding, I think it'll also couple your hearts more closely with the leadership to try to understand better how to serve them more effectively, how to be a blessing to them. And how to make sure, I mean, the promise is basically, like to paraphrase so much of what Paul wrote in the epistles is like, listen, don't be a jerk to your elders yeah. or pastors. It's actually, it'll it'll be a great benefit to you if you're not a jerk to right. them and you support them. Yeah. So that it's amazing that there's a benefit in it for us. And this is part of that. If you want to protect your church, you want to make sure that it's following closely after the Lord Jesus Christ, that has strong doctrinal, scriptural fidelity. It starts in many ways with understanding who your leaders are and the process of ordination. Yeah. So Paul, to summarize, Paul, don't be a Nate. Don't be it. What was it? Don't be an unrepentant Scott. Was it, was it Scott that we said? Yeah. I think it was Scott. Yeah. I feel like we missed a major opportunity with the Mandalorian with, with this. When you said this is the way all of a sudden, all these illustrations oh, of the Mandalorian even, yes. popped into my head. So, so buckle up. We're going to do another two hour. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is important. This is something like Jesse said, like, your church probably has a whole mechanism for this and understanding what that mechanism is. You know, we talk about, you talk about like, should I leave a church? Sometimes you have to make a decision to leave a church. One of the things you should understand about your church, and this should influence your, your decision about that church, whether you're going to join or stay, is what is the ordination structure? Right on. Because if you exactly. have a church that doesn't have validly ordained pastors, that doesn't have a legitimate mechanism... Um, you know, I, I think the Presbyterian model of ordained men, ordaining men is best, but I'm also in a Baptist church where I, I recognize that, like, I don't think my pastor's not ordained properly. It's different than I probably would have done it if I was setting it up, but I, I, I recognize that, right? There's, there's complicated things going on, but if you are in a situation that has no validly ordained church officers, elders, deacons, whatever, then you probably are in a church that actually is not executing church discipline properly. And isn't right. preaching the word properly, and isn't administering the, the the sacraments properly, and it gets to a point with some of those things where you're not actually in a church at all, and so so that's a major thing that you should investigate. And I hope that this has been helpful. I hope this isn't just like a lot of abstract stuff. I, I really think this is something that Christians really need to think through a lot more. You know, we have this perspective of like to go back to the green beret, whatever the Berean berets. We have this perspective that like, it's really just about me and my Bible and my, my individual relationship with God. And that's just not, that's just not how the Bible presents the Christian faith. It's about this body of people, this, this organic entity of people that are really, truly united to each other and really, truly united to Christ. And that involves this delegated authority, this delegated officer that God has put in place. And we didn't even have time to go to all the passages about pastors being a gift to the church and that this is something that Christ gives us so that we can be matured and they're given to us for the work of ministry and to, to edify us and to perfect us. Like all of these things that God gives to the people, 
Well, that involves a certain amount of like God, God equips those people and the church should recognize that equipping, right? So there's all these other biblical things. Again, if you just search Albert Martin, a call to ministry sermon audio in Google, it should be the first entry. It's it's, it's about five hours, but you will absolutely reap profit out of it. Like it will be beneficial to you, whether you are interested in going into ministry or whether you're just, just a Christian in the pew that wants to understand this better. It will really retool how you think about this stuff. And it's a really, really good series. Um, you know, Charles Spurgeon lectures to my students. Bridges has it. I mean, there's there's discussions in Owen. This is something that goes way back in our tradition, and it's it's something that has never really been challenged on any serious level, right. apart from the Anabaptists, right? And maybe like the the Amish and the Quakers, they don't have they don't have like pastors. Everybody, you know, it's like super egalitarian. This is something we should think more about. So I'm glad we had an opportunity to kind of tack this onto our church discipline series. Hopefully, it made sense. Hopefully, it's it's edifying. Um, I guess don't forget we're doing our our contest with uh, with there the, we go the Good books segue. that we're giving away. Right. Good segue. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me pick up some of the details there in case you're listening and you're like, what? There's a contest? What? There are free books that I could win? The answer to all those is yes and yes. So here's the deal. We'll make it really simple this time. We're getting some entries in. We're giving away three books. One is called The Christ Key, another one's called Scandalous Stories, and the last one's called Night Driving, It's Stories of a Prodigal Soul. These are by Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen, who are our Lutherans in residence, even though I just bashed Lutheran (laughs) (laughs) theology in the beginning of this. We love them because they're brothers. This is the kind of thing we can disagree on and love one another. So here's all you have to do. We're just going to keep it simple today. All you have to do is give a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. Share the podcast on Twitter or share a podcast on Facebook and you just send us an image that you've done that to info at reformbrotherhood.com. So you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts, share it on Twitter or share it on Facebook and that at least gets you in. We're getting entries, Tony. We People are. want these books. That's oh, yeah. true. We're well, we entries. were talking, so, I was signing there. up to be an affiliate for Dwell Bible uh, audio app. So if we uh, need to start getting some money from them, we actually might be able to. But one of the things uh, that I did while I was doing this, I logged into our, our email and there are entries coming in. So got to get in there fast. So check it out. <laughs> rate, and, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, share the show, either a, a link to a particular episode you found helpful or to the show itself on Twitter or Facebook. And then email a screenshot of that in so we know you did it to ref, uh, reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. That's our accountability. That's yes. how we know. It's all happening. It's all, it's all in the up and up. It's true. That's how we can make sure that everybody is participating. So it's kind of old school, but it's the it way is. we like it. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with old school. It's true. Well, to be old school, we've done this 251 times now. Until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm fine?